You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. First, a little good news. Teen pregnancies are right now, teen pregnancies, almost always being unplanned pregnancies and unwed pregnancies, teen pregnancies at their lowest rate in 40 years. No thanks, of course, to the politicians, to the Republicans, to the conservatives, to the nuts, to the science haters, to the sex phobes uh, who've done all they can to drive the teen pregnancy rate up by doing what? By blocking access to birth control and abortion but, but to birth control. But teen pregnancies, lowest rates in 40 years and the abortion rate has not gone up in that time. What this points – and the rate of sexual activity among teenagers has not dropped. What this points to is increased access to contraception has brought the teen pregnancy rate down, down, down. Greater access to contraception brings the teen pregnancy rate down. Who knew, right? The teen pregnancy rate could be lower if access was easier, which brings us to plan B. Plan B is one form of emergency contraception, which is kind of like a mega dose, a big zap of birth control that you take after you had sex without protection or a condom broke or you were sexually assaulted. It's basically backup birth control. It's plan B. Plan B does not cause an abortion. What it does is it prevents ovulation or fertilization of an egg or an implantation. It is not an abortificant and yet, of course, the religious right screams that it is an abortion pill. There is an abortion pill but plan B ain't it. Now, plan B is safe. Plan B is safer than Tylenol and in 2005, Susan Wood who worked as the top women's health official at the Food and Drug Administration and the Bush administration, resigned her job after the Bush administration blocked access to Plan B and other forms of emergency contraception uh, for women under the age of 18. I'm going to read this quote from her. This decision, which left women of all ages without appropriate and timely access to emergency contraception, was a clear rejection of recommendations that had been based on extensive review and evaluation of the pertinent data. That's what Susan Wood said in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2005. 2009, a federal judge, Edward Corman, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan and who worked for Richard Nixon, who is kind of a conservative dude, he ordered the FDA to revisit, reconsider their Plan B decision, the decision they'd made in the Bush era. Political actors, he wrote, were driving health policy, which, you know, is kind of against the law. So he ordered the FDA to make Plan B available to women 17 and over and to look at the research and the data and the science and determine if Plan B should be made available over the counter without restriction to women of all ages. And in 2011, deep into the Obama administration, the panel convened by the FDA under this judge's orders concluded that the drug could be used safely by women of all ages only to be overruled by Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. And the 18 and over restriction stayed in place. That same federal judge three weeks ago ruled that Sebelius's move was, and I'm quoting here, arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable, politically motivated, scientifically unjustified, and contrary to agency precedent. And ordered Plan B to be made available to women of all ages without restriction, not behind the counter. You shouldn't have to ask the pharmacist. People were having – Plan B. this is the way Plan B works. It prevents ovulation, prevents fertilization. You can take it after unprotected 
sex, whether a condom broke or you just got carried away in the moment or you were sexually assaulted, the sooner you take it, the more effective it is. With each passing day, it is less effective. It works up to five days after unprotected sex, but with each of those passing days, it's less effective. If you have to go to a pharmacist and produce an ID, what if the pharmacist isn't there? What if the pharmacy's hours don't coincide with your need for plan B, even if you have to wait 12 hours or 24 hours? Your chances of becoming pregnant go up and up and up. And what if you're 16 and not 17 or 18? Anyway, the judge ordered the, the Obama administration to pay attention to the science, to pay attention to their own research and to make Plan B available to women of all ages without restriction over the counter. And the Obama administration is appealing that decision and blocking it. They have decided to lower the age from 18 to 15. They'll make the drug available from the pharmacist. If you can prove you're 15, so there's going to have to be an ID check, but not if you're younger than 15. Now, the Family Research Council, our old friends at the Family Research Council, they hate this decision. They hate this judge. This decision undermines the right of parents to make important health decisions for their young daughters said Anna Higgins. Basically what the Family Research Council is saying here is that parents should have the right to force their daughters to be pregnant against their daughters' wills if that's what their parents decide is best for their daughters, that a 14-year-old shouldn't have access to this drug without a parent's consent. You know, when you talk about 14-year-olds, you talk about young women, you talk about access to contraception, we talk about access to abortion, a lot of people kind of get nervous because wouldn't it be better if the parents were involved? Absolutely, it would be better if the parents were involved. But you know what? A 14, 15, 16-year-old girl who has the kind of parents that she can go to in a crisis like this and ask for help obtaining an abortion or emergency contraception is going to go to her parents. The kind of 14-year-old who has parents that she cannot go to is the kind of 14-year-old that we need to eliminate these restrictions for, to protect her. You know, the kind of 14-year-old who maybe had unplanned, unprotected sex, you know, when her dad raped her, shouldn't have to go to her fucking dad to get his permission to go get some plan B and prevent a pregnancy. And yet here we have the Obama administration carrying forward these bizarre and anti-woman and anti-science policies of the Bush administration. Obama's Food and Drug Administration is blocking access to Plan B for women of all ages despite what is now two decades worth of science showing that it should be made available, that it is safe, safer than Tylenol, Susan Wood says. Girls can go to Walgreens and buy all the Tylenol that they want. They cannot buy the Plan B that they might need despite the fact that Plan B is safer. Reading all about this and it's really maddening. Made me remember Barack Obama's inauguration, the first one and his first inaugural address where he said, everywhere we look, there is work to be done. The state of the economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act. We will build roads and bridges, the electric grids and digital lines that feed our commerce and bind us together. And then he said, we will restore science to its rightful place. I was in a room full of lefties on Inauguration Day in 2009 when George Bush was sworn in. And when he said, we will restore science to its rightful place, cheers erupted in the crowd. That meant something to us as liberals and progressives, as the reality-based community. And it is so distressing to know now that there was an asterisk at the end of that sentence. We will restore science to its rightful place unless 
the science has something to do with sexually active teenagers and with women's reproductive health and with women's rights, then we're going to kick science to the cur- – we're going to put science in exactly the same box that the Bushies put it in. We're going to ignore it. We're going to fight it and women are going to suffer and 14 and 15-year-old girls who should have access to this drug won't because dot, 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 I have no idea why except fear of teen sexuality, fear of female sexuality, a misplaced reverence for the way families ought to work. Yes, families ought to be healthy and parents ought to be loving and supportive and a parent with a child who had an unprotected sexual encounter, yeah, that child should have the kind of parent that child can go to and talk to about that and get their love and support. But not every child has that. And the children who are going to suffer for lack of access to Plan B are the children who are already suffering with shitty fucking parents. And this decision will do nothing to protect them and only compound their suffering and their misery and only make them more vulnerable. And this isn't the Bush administration we're talking about. This isn't the Bush administration carrying water for the Family Research Council and punishing women, punishing girls for being sexually active or sexually victimized. This is the Obama administration doing it and it is appalling. Hi, Dan, a longtime listener of the show. Love your podcast. Um, I'm calling in with a question about the campsite rule and I know that you usually use the campsite rule about people with large age discrepancies. Um, but I'm in a situation where I have a partner who's not much younger than I am. It's about a year difference, but he is very new to the long-term relationship game and we've been together for 10 months. Um, so it's starting to look like it might become a long-term relationship, kind of starting to get to that point. Um, and I really love being with him, love you know, the idea of potentially being in a long-term relationship. Um, but I've been there a few times before and he never has. So do, does the campsite rule apply in this case? I don't want to play any kind of agency on his part, think that, you know, he's some precious little flower that needs coddling of any kind, but I do think that I have a certain measure of responsibility here. So give me your opinion on this, what you might think. When I first busted out the campsite rule, it was in reference to relationships with significant age gaps. If somebody was much older and they were dating or with or romancing or just fuck buddying or friends with benefiting, uh, somebody who's significantly younger that I believe that you as the older party in that relationship had a responsibility to leave that younger person in better shape than you found them. That is the campsite rule. When you go camping, you're supposed to leave the campsite in better shape than you found it. When you fuck somebody who's 15 years younger than you are, 25 years younger than you are and not all those relationships are exploitative uh, or the exploitation doesn't all go one way and often there's a lot of mutual benefit to a relationship with a significant age gap. But if you're in a relationship like that, I think the older person has a responsibility to honor the campsite rule. Leave that person in better shape than you found them, which means no, as I said in the column at the time, no sexually transmitted infections, no unplanned pregnancies, no unnecessary heartbreak. And you can avoid unnecessary heartbreak in a situation like that by not making promises you know most likely are not going to come true. When there's a significant age gap, unless you're lucky, uh, it probably won't work out. So you don't want to make a lot of forever and ever promises. 
What you want to do is, for now, awesome, this is great, for now, which, which is really all anyone has in any relationship, whether there's a significant age gap or not. All you really got is right now. But, you know, if you know it's probably going to be a summer thing or a semester thing or a year thing where then you part as friends, don't make forever and ever promises, particularly if you're the older person. And a lot of people, when I trotted out the campsite rule, wrote it and said, why doesn't this apply in all cases? Whether there's a significant age gap or not, shouldn't we all be trying to leave each other in better shape than we found each other if the relationships don't work out? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. I do believe when there is a significant age gap, that's hard to say fast, there's a special onus on the older, wiser, presumably person to make a little extra effort to leave that person in better shape. But yeah, we should all be decent and kind to each other, which brings us to you and your problem. This person that you're dating, not a significant age gap, his first experience with relationships and sexual relationships and a romantic relationship. You've been together 10 months. So what's your responsibility? Uh, your responsibility isn't to not break their heart or not break his heart. It's to not inflict unnecessary, undue romantic heartbreak or hardship, which means you know, you're together. You're dating. If it's going to end and he's going to get his heart stomped, then it's going to end and he's going to get his heart stomped. It will be worse for him in the heart-stomping department. If for fear of shattering this delicate flower who's never been in a relationship, you allow the relationship to go on longer than it should, longer than you want to be in it because you don't want to break his heart. You don't want to dump him. He will realize when you finally do get around to dumping him that you wanted to dump him long ago and that realization can make normal, necessary heartbreak feel like unnecessary heartbreak. That can salt the wound. So when you're done and it's over – kindly and considerately and compassionately extract yourself, fully aware that he will probably be upset, probably be heartbroken, but not unnecessarily so. He will be necessarily heartbroken when it is over, when it has run its course, and then you extract yourself. Good luck. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 25-year-old ostensibly straight woman living in Europe. I started masturbating when I was 12, and I quickly discovered erotica online, written stuff, mostly tame, but, you know, erotica. Maybe that's what programmed me to be this way, but because so much of it was from a male perspective. But anyway, as an adult, when I fantasize in order to masturbate, and at least for the last four years, I don't even remember how long it's been, but it seems like forever. Um, what I'm imagining is myself with a dick, uh, getting blowjobs, having sex with women, especially blowjobs. I'm like crazy about that in my fantasies, which is all well and good. But the thing is, I'm I'm ostensibly straight. Uh, I'm in a three-year-long, wonderful relationship with a man who fulfills me sexually. And when I'm the one being penetrated, it's totally hot or whatever. And I, I don't know, I love to be the woman and I'm dominated and everything. But when he goes down on me, for example, I'm imagining myself with a dick. I guess I feel kind of guilty about it. I mean, I've told him it's one of my fantasies and it took me a while to sort of be able to accept that because I felt really dirty saying, oh my God, yeah, you know, like I'm not, I'm not fantasizing about being penetrated. I'm fantasizing about penetrating, about getting blowjobs. It's like I have to, you know, imagine that I have a dick and, and that he's a woman. So anyway, um, I was just wondering if there's anything to do about it. Like not, you know, I want to be cured, but more as a way to investigate this really potent sexual obsession I have, or is it just one of those unrealizable fantasies? Is there anything you can do about this? You seriously are a regular listener to this program, a regular reader of my column, and you don't know what you can do about this? 
You love the cock, you say. You really love the cock. You love the cock so much that you think it might be fun to have one once in a while. And you can have one. You can't wire it into your central nervous system. It's not going to fire off pleasure signals to your brain. But you can buy a big fat fucking dildo and you can strap it on and you can see what it feels like to have a dick. And you can stuff that dick down people's throats and you can stuff it up people's asses, male or female. You can, through the miracle of strap-on technology, be the person in that encounter who does the fucking, who gets a blowjob on her big plastic silicone dick but still gets a blowjob. And there are men out there who would love to be with a woman who wanted to strap one on once in a while and flip all those gender roles and invert them and have fun sort of violating gender expectations and who he is at that moment and who you are at that moment becoming very different and then reverting back to who you are most of the time and who you're satisfied with being most of the time. So dis-in-fuck-in-hibit and get online and buy yourself a strap-on dildo and find yourself a nice European boy, one of those guys that we see on those – gay or Euro websites where they keep showing us pictures of hot guys and we have to guess whether they're gay dudes or just European dudes and they're fucking sexy and I bet a lot of them would be into being plowed by a hot American chick with a big fat strap on dildo between her legs. Go for it. Hi, Dan. Uh, 26 gay in a very happy relationship now for over four years. I'm calling today because uh, I got a problem that neither my boyfriend or I seem to be able to uh, agree on as far as uh, finding the right solution goes. Both of my parents are uh, have passed away. Uh, my mother more so uh, recently in October, and as a result, uh, according to the will, uh, I've gained custody of my younger brother who is uh, 15 for a number of reasons. Obviously, um, one of them being that uh, I'm the closest family member. Uh, there's really nobody else. Recently, I've noticed some behavioral changes that my brother is having, including awkwardness being around myself and my boyfriend. And uh, it seems to be due that to these uh, life changes that have occurred. Uh, one of the things that seems to uh, really stick out is that uh, he's been with uh, a number of girls now. And by my count, at this point, I'm seeing a new girlfriend every week at this point. Uh, one of my fears is that he may be using sex as a way of hiding his emotions. And I'm not entirely sure how to address it um, appropriately with him. At the moment, uh, I have him arranged to see a therapist uh, twice a week. Uh, but my real question is, what are some things I can do to help him adjust uh, the deep changes in his life? Um, you know, this is a new environment for him, and it's very different from what he's been used to growing up in. Um, my other part of the question is what would be the best way to help them understand healthy relationships, you know, be they gay or straight, uh, during this vulnerable time for him. I'm sorry for your loss, that you've lost both your parents. I'm glad for your brother that he has family that love him and want to take care of him and that he has uh, a place to go with some reasonable, rational people, you and your partner, who are concerned for him and concerned for his welfare. That said, he sounds like a 15-year-old boy. You say that you're noticing a lot of changes and you know he's behaving in new and different and weird and strange ways and he's obsessed with girls. Try to separate all of that from the trauma. Maybe it's related to the trauma. Maybe not. He could just be 
doing the 15-year-old boy thing. I have a 15-year-old son. What you've described sounds very familiar and my 15-year-old son's parents are gay but also not dead. So there hasn't been a lot of trauma or upheaval. There just has been turning 15. And then on top of turning 15, for your brother, there's losing his mother, losing his father, um, moving in with you guys, you know, his whole life turned inside out and upside down. Also, you know, you need to swallow this and not be enraged by it. But he's a 15-year-old straight boy being raised by his gay brother and his gay brother's gay husband or boyfriend or partner. He may be asserting his hetero bona fides uh, in an aggressive way to communicate who he is to his peers, that he – despite having gay guardians, despite now being raised by his gay brother, he is not gay himself. And what better way to demonstrate to that to everyone in his social circle than by plowing through as many girls as quickly as he can? I would – if I were in your shoes, I would – Make sure he's going to his therapist's appointment. Make sure he knows that he's loved and he's safe and you guys aren't going anywhere and that um, you're going to see him through the next few years and you're going to be there for him always, even if he's a bit of a dick to you uh, perhaps at this age. And he maybe he has a little bit of a right to be a bit of a dick considering what he's gone through. But you need to read him the riot act. You need to not be on eggshells with him about certain risks that he's – Incurring that could really derail his life, keep him in therapy, keep him talking, love and support him, yell and scream at him about birth control, yell and scream at him about Instagram, yell and scream at him about consent. Make sure that he understands that drunk ain't consent and that he isn't doing anything to demonstrate his hetero bona fides that could get him into legal trouble, that could get him to ethical moral trouble, that could – derail his life. Make sure he's not getting anybody pregnant. Make sure he's not doing anything that – I'm just going to say. Make sure he's not raping anybody and you have to really be that explicit and that, that aggressive with him. This is what consent is and isn't. This is what a legitimate sexual relationship at your age is and isn't. This is what birth control is and this is what birth control isn't. And you just need to download all that shit into his head and talk to him about it. And it will be awkward for you to talk to him about – birth control and girls this aggressively. Um, but it will be much more awkward for you and for him if for want of information or sobering you will be held accountable kind of confrontations with his guardians, he gets somebody pregnant or he gets into a situation where consent is murky or absent and winds up in trouble with the law or on the hook for child support payments or in all kinds of crisis. So let him be who he is. Let him live his life. Be there for him but get in his face about birth control, about consent, about the way he treats women or girls and get him to think about why he's doing, who he's doing and when he's doing them and where he's doing them and how he's doing them so that he can keep being the little straight boy having fun and girlfriends and a fun, exciting sex life as he grows up but a sex life that isn't abusing or exploiting anyone else. And if he's going through a girl a week right now, he probably is not abusing but – likely exploiting and he shouldn't do that and you should get in his face about it. Hey Dan, I'm a 27 year old gay guy and I have a question for you about, well, it's an odd situation. Basically I have a gay cousin. He's about 20, 25 years older than I am. He and I have a really uh, nice rapport with each other. He lives um, rather far away from me, so I don't see him often, but we talk often. And the other day, 
uh, late in the evening, I got a text message from him on my phone, and I opened it up, and it was a picture. And I believe that the picture was not intended for me. He and his boyfriend have been together for a really long time. Uh, I love both of them. I think they're great together. The picture, I don't know who it was, but um, it seems like it was, well, it was obviously a naked guy, and it seems like there is someone in front of this naked guy, and but I can't totally tell, but I can tell that a third person took the picture. I didn't know how to respond immediately, so I took like a minute to like think about what to do. So finally I responded, what is this? You know, question mark, question mark, question mark, thinking like, oh, like uh, maybe I'll just like pass it off. Like, oh, this was supposed to be a joke or something. But it's so obviously a private picture, a private personal picture that was not supposed to be sent to me. Uh, What do I do? do? Do I wait for a response from him? Do I never bring it up again? Do I laugh about it? I just, I really don't know what to do. I have a yes or no question for you. And then you can just answer yes or no. And then we'll hang up and you can wait to hear the call. Okay. Okay. Yes or no question. Do you think your cousin wants to fuck you? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. Okay. Now I know what to say to you. Okay, listen, it sounds like it was an accident, like a stray photograph. And your job in that moment, if you don't believe your cousin is somehow trying to, you know, raise the subject of sex and, you know, take your relationship in a new direction by Mm -hmm. pretending to accidentally send you this inappropriate photo, um, if you don't believe that's the case, all you do is laugh it off. You, You send him a response to say, whoopsie, and then he goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That wasn't meant for you. And you say, obviously, and then you don't bring it up ever again. You know, adults and their phones blast photos around and... You know, adults who have sexual relationships send dirty pictures to their partners and, you know, if, they, mm-hmm. if, you, if him and his partner have an open relationship, maybe they took a couple pictures and they meant to send it to that person whose name is similar to yours. You don't know what happened. But you give uh-huh. them the benefit of the doubt and assume it was an accident. Even if you think your cousin was trying to get into your pants, you give them the benefit of the doubt and pretend it was an accident. But, but you, don't, he, you don't think he was trying to get into your pants. No, no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. So you laugh it off. And then you remember one day in the future that you may do this too to someone. You may send an inappropriate photo to someone. Who amongst us has not? That is true. That is very, very true. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Have you heard back from him? You say you responded to him. Did he ever respond back? No, no, he did not. Okay, maybe he's mortified. Just pick your relationship up where it left off and have a convo about something else. Right. Okay, well, awesome. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Send him a link to a viral video tonight or something. Just, like, clear the air. Lance the Boyle. Thank you so much. Good luck. Have fun. Hey, Dan. Um, My wife and I have been married for about 15 years. We have a very vanilla, but I think very good and fulfilling sex life. One night we had uh, been drinking maybe a little bit too much and she started telling me that she wants to have a foursome and wants to have another woman lick her pussy and all this type of thing. And it totally struck me off guard, basically, that she wanted to have an open relationship and that type of thing. The next day, I'm at work thinking about it all day, uh, kind of scared, uh, not knowing how to react to it. I come home the next day. She doesn't remember any of it, and then I tell her the things she was saying to me, and she is saying that she's never thought about that kind of stuff. She doesn't want any of that. 
And I just wonder, is this something that I need to think about? Is this something that the alcohol took the fears and the apprehension away that she uh, has been thinking about this for a long time and wants to do this? Or I, I'm just kind of worried about our, our future together now. Is this something that is going to keep coming back up? And is this something that she's pushing down inside of herself because because uh, she's scared of what it could do to our relationship and it's going to keep coming back? I listened to your call a couple of times because I heard it all the way through and thought, oh, he must have been psyched. And then I listened to the call again just to make sure before I gave you any advice that you were indeed sounding psyched. And you don't sound psyched. A lot of straight married men uh, in relationships, you know, married for 15 years and a lot of decent and good and satisfying vanilla sex. If the wife got drunk and confessed she wanted to have a foursome and have her pussy licked by another woman, a lot of guys, straight guys would be totally into that. And you actually don't sound so totally into that. You sound worried uh, or a little threatened. So maybe you're one of those straight guys who are out there and they're legion who are satisfied with one person and very into monogamy and not interested in bringing anyone else in or having this kind of sexual adventure that your wife talked about when she was horny and drunk. And here's the thing. People, when they're horny and drunk, don't make shit up. They don't really tell lies. They don't really throw things out under the table or the mattress in that moment of drunken disinhibition that they don't actually feel, that they aren't actually excited about. That doesn't mean they necessarily want to do it or experience it. A lot of people go through life with fantasies, sexual fantasies that, that, that arouse them, that sometimes they think about or toy with but that they have no real interest in bringing to life. You know, maybe she thinks about having a four-way someday at some time. Maybe the, you know, the idea of a four-way turns her on. But when she's sober, the reality of a four-way is a turnoff. That there's no way she could see doing it that doesn't threaten your relationship, that doesn't in some way cheapen what sex is and what it means for her in the context of your relationship. And while this crazy fantasy kind of gets her juices flowing now and then, she has no interest in bringing it to life. So should you be worried? I think after 15 years of monogamy and fulfilling vanilla sex with this woman, you should, like I said to the previous caller, give her the fucking benefit of the doubt. Yeah, she has a fantasy. It fell out of her mouth when she was horny and drunk. Doesn't mean she necessarily wants to do it. Doesn't mean it's all she ever thinks about. Doesn't mean she's unsatisfied in this relationship. Give her the benefit of the doubt. And it's not that enormous a doubt. If you guys never fucked and she was on a woman's softball team and chopped her hair off and could barely look at your dick, the fact that she threw this out there might be very worrisome indeed. It might point to the fact that she wasn't interested in heterosexual sex or you. But she is and has been and I think will continue to be. That your wife has these hidden depths, has these fantasies, that's grand and glorious and not necessarily a threat to your relationship. I bet if I sat you down and really drew you out, you would have some fantasies, some things you've thought about, some things you perhaps wanted to try before you got married or did try before you got married but now – because you're married and you're in love and this is what sex is for you and means to you. Those things aren't possible anymore but you feel some nostalgia for those things that you did back when you were single or some regret about those fantasies you didn't get fulfilled before you married. That doesn't mean you don't love your wife, right? That she has these – this one fantasy doesn't mean she doesn't love you. It doesn't mean it's going to bubble up one day and destroy your marriage. It probably will fall out of her mouth again though once or twice when she's drunk and horny. And at those moments – if that happens again, I would advise you to look her in the eye, kiss her on the mouth and say, I'm going to eat your pussy. You lean back, close your eyes and pretend I'm a woman. 
and we can realize that crazy fantasy of yours together through fantasy. Hi, Dan. I am a girl who ejaculates, and I'm wondering, my boyfriend wants me to consume my own squirt, and I'm wondering if there are any potential health risks to this or if it's sterile-like urine. Thanks so much. I think drowning is the only risk. When I've seen women ejaculate, and I've been in the room and I have watched, it is like a sprinkler. It is amazing. It is like a fire fucking hose for about two minutes. So yeah, it's perfectly fine. It's not analogous to urine. They've studied the chemical makeup of female ejaculate and it bears a very striking resemblance chemically and organically to male ejaculate. So if you're eating his and you're fine, there's no problem eating your own. You'll be fine. Hi, Dan. I am a heteroflexible male in his mid-30s living in a medium-sized city on the East Coast. And I was just having a conversation with my girlfriend, and uh, it pertained to an ad that we saw pop up online for penis-enlarging pills, such as Extend or Enzyte. I think those are two popular brands. And my girlfriend maintains that no men buy these pills, that absolutely under no circumstances would any man be foolish enough to actually invest in these pills. And I countered that many, many men, out of hope and desperation, fall for these pervasive ads and purchase these products. She believes that only young boys, 12-year-olds and the like, would fall for this kind of marketing. And uh, after some spirited discussion, I had to point out that I have purchased these pills in the past. And I was hoping to not admit that because it's not the thing that I'm most proud of. Uh, I was a chump. I fell for an infomercial when I was drunk and sad and staring forlornly at my inadequate penis by myself. So the question that I have is, do men actually purchase these? Or am I the only man who's ever bought penis enlarging pills? Uh, I can't find anything about this online, any statistics. As you might imagine, the keywords one types in to determine such things just lead to a whole lot of ads for these products. And I'm just curious to find out if there are any statistics out there or any anecdotal evidence that demonstrates just how many grown-ass men be buying dick-growing pills. I don't know if you have Google where you and your girlfriend are, but we have Google where we are, where we do the show. We have an internet connection and we have Google. And just dinking around a little bit about male enhancement pills, found just one company was spending a million dollars a month on advertising and taking in $100 million a year in revenue. They are not selling $100 million worth of penis enlargement pills to 12-year-olds who do not have credit cards, who cannot go online and order them. They are selling them to duped, insecure, foolish men who fell for it. And your girlfriend is with one of those men. I'm not saying you're insecure now or you you're foolish now, but you succumbed to the siren call of the Enzite commercial, whichever one that you saw. So yeah, don't be fucking idiots. Tell your girlfriend I said don't be a fucking idiot. They wouldn't be spending all this money on TV commercials for these bullshit products if somebody wasn't falling for it. 
Same goes for the 700 Club and evangelicals on TV. There's a lot of people on TV selling bullshit to suckers, whether it's God or dick and bigoning pills. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 30-year-old gay guy from the South Bay in Los Angeles. I'm an enormous hypochondriac, and I'm not a total idiot, so I've done everything I can to have safe sex. I've never had sex without a condom, even when I'm in a monogamous uh, monogamous relationship. So I always considered myself fairly immune to very serious life-threatening diseases that come from sexual activity. Um, so I never dreamt that I'd have to worry about making out with a stranger. I'm also an, an avid listener of your show and have yet to hear anything about this issue. So can you maybe shed some light on uh, your more worried listeners about this whole meningitis issue that's been popping up everywhere? Like you call her, I am a gay man and a bit of a hypochondriac and I have been following the news about the meningitis outbreak first in New York City and now there's been a case in Los Angeles uh, with reasonable alarm with my usual uh, calm panic state. Whenever I read about a health issue, whatever it is, I have it. So I've been reading about the meningitis outbreaks and worrying myself. And so joining us by phone today to either crank up our worry or set us both at ease is Dr. Tom Clark, medical epidemiologist and meningitis expert from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Good afternoon, Dr. Clark. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm very good. Um, so let's just start at the very beginning. What is meningitis? All right. So meningitis is an infection or inflammation of the protective lining that surrounds the brain and spinal cord. And it can be caused by uh, viruses, it can be caused by bacteria or other things. Most of, most of what we worry about is bacterial meningitis. And that's, and that's what this outbreak is. These, there's right. 20 cases in New York in the last two years and seven deaths. That's all we're talking about. 20 cases in New York and seven deaths uh, is right. bacterial meningitis. Right. And, and meningitis is around all the time. So we have bacterial meningitis in the U.S. Each state reports some. There's about 800 cases a year. Uh, and some, sometimes we see outbreaks like these where there's more cases than usual. And how, and how is it spread? So people are saying that this is being spread through sexual contact. There, there's a vaccine for meningitis and uh, New York City health officials have urged gay men to get vaccinated for meningitis if they're meeting people through apps, in bars, at parties, basically gay men meeting people, period, at all, because those are pretty much the ways that gay men meet each other. Um, how is it spread? Yeah, it's a, it's a little complicated, but it's important, I think, to know that it's not a sexually transmitted disease per se. So it's, it's transmitted when you have close contact with a person and you either have contact with oral secretions or large respiratory droplets, we would say. And so that means uh, close face-to-face -face prolonged contact with somebody. So um, you can get it from, from friends kissing, for example, um, but it's not casually transmitted and it's not like the flu that you can kind of be downstream from someone or in the next office over and get it. It re really requires pretty close, pretty prolonged face-to-face -face kinds of contact. Face-to-face tongue-in-tongue contact? Well, yeah, so um, French kissing can transmit it um, because these are bacteria that live in the nose and throat normally in some people. Mm -hmm. um, most of the time, those, those bacteria don't do you any harm. Um, they go away by themselves. Uh, and In fact, most of the, the range of those bacteria that cause meningococcal disease are quite harmless. It's just a small number 
that will cause disease. So if you're in close contact with somebody who has the disease or comes down with it, we know you're at very high risk. So that's why you'll you'll see that antibiotics are given to close contacts. They're given to roommates or somebody who lives in the house of a person who has meningococcal disease because you're very likely to get it. Why is it, you know, there's been 20 cases and seven deaths among gay men in New York. Why is the mortality rate so high with this this particular outbreak? So the usual case fatality or mortality with meningococcal disease is about 10 to 15%, but some specific strains uh, do cause death more commonly, and those are also the ones that are more likely to cause outbreaks. So it's actually pretty common in outbreaks that we see um, about a third of cases are fatal. About a third of the people who get disease die. But if you come down with it, you're not destined to die. There are treatments. No, it's a, you know, we think of it as a, both a medical emergency and a public health emergency. So if you have meningococcal disease or meningococcal meningitis, uh, it's very serious. You need to get to the hospital immediately and you get antibiotics. And this is actually an infection that's quite susceptible to antibiotics. So you get it and you can treat it. Um, unfortunately, it can progress really rapidly. And so people can feel a little bit unwell, fever, headache, um, body aches, uh, and then get very sick very fast and treatment is just too late. So right now the problem is that some people may be experiencing symptoms and not recognize them as meningitis and not be seeking treatment early enough? Um, it's actually a little... So meningitis is one of the types of disease that we're talking about, actually. And we use meningitis as a catch-all. Um, and people who get meningitis, that's about half of cases, you're actually much more likely to recognize it, treat it, and they get they're more likely to recover. Mm-hmm. You can also have just a severe bloodstream infection. And sometimes you'll see in the, in the press that people with meningococcal disease have, um, they survive, but they have amputations. They lose hands or feet or limbs. Uh, it's because the, there's a kind of overwhelming infection through the whole body. And that's actually worse to have and more likely to be fatal. So on a scale of 1 to 10, and what you're saying sounds pretty scary, how freaked out should gay men be about the meningitis outbreak in New York City and the one case that we know of in Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, I like your characterization of calm panic. You know, be aware, um, learn about it and understand what you can do to protect yourself. And we don't really talk about, um, you know, change your behaviors to protect yourself because it, you can't, for any given person who gets it, tell why they got it. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you you got meningitis because you're a smoker or you got meningitis because you French kissed the guy in the bar. Um, so get vaccinated. You know, there's a vaccine that's safe and effective People with HIV can get it. They're not. It's not a live vaccine, uh, and that protects against most of the disease we see in the U.S. And it protects against the strains that are going around now. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's still rare. Like you say, 22 cases in gay men in New York, a, a few cases in this one recent one in Los Angeles. The overall risk is not high, um, but the disease itself can be devastating, and so it, it makes sense. To get vaccinated. People learn about it and get vaccinated, yeah, and then, you're, then you don't have to worry about it. So to answer this caller's question, which, you know, he ended the call with, can I still go to gay bars, feel up the go-go boys, and make out with a stranger in the corner? The answer would be, yeah, I mean, your risk of contracting meningitis, very low. But if you want to eliminate that risk and enjoy the go- feeling up the go-go boys and making out with strangers, go fucking get vaccinated. 
yeah, get vaccinated, you know, your you risk of anything is never zero. Um, but this is something you can do to protect yourself and, and stop worrying about this. Where can people go to get more info about meningitis, the disease, and about the vaccine? So the best place to go really is our website at www.cdc.gov meningitis. That talks about all meningitis, bacterial meningitis, and there's easy-to-follow links to vaccine information and what it's about and who should get it. Dr. Tom Clark, medical epidemiologist and meningitis expert from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us. You bet. Thanks. Years ago, uh, once, many, 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 many years ago, I was with some guy. It wasn't so great. I kind of wanted it to end. And I did something that I thought I was the only guy on earth to do, the only guy on earth who had ever done this thing and gotten away with it. And that it had only ever happened once and I was the only person who ever did it. I faked an orgasm just to say, hey, look, I'm done. So we can go now. I can I can get dressed and leave now. Thank you. Uh, apparently, I'm not the only guy who's tried this. Joining me by phone uh, from Boston, Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, author of the new book, Why Men Fake It, The Totally Unexpected Truth About Men and Sex. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Dr. Morgenthaler. Great to be with you, Dan. So all these years, I thought I was the only guy ever to fake an orgasm. <laughs> apparently not so. That's a funny story. Let me tell you that. When, so I'm, I'm a urologist that specializes in sexual medicine. I like to joke that I'm a psycho-urologist because there's so much <laughs> brain and psychology that goes into it. But I've seen literally thousands of men. I'm in practice 25 years. And when this guy comes in to see me about six, seven years ago, he's 25, and he has trouble climaxing during sex. And um, he thought he was a stud for the longest time because when he just had these girlfriends with, you know, sort of wasn't that involved with him. He could just keep going and going like the Energizer Bunny, and he thought he was a stud. And then he fell in love with this woman, and he quickly sensed that she was feeling bad about herself because he couldn't come. You know, that maybe mm. she wasn't sexy enough or she wasn't doing it right. So the way he resolved that, to be kind to her, like, you know, to make her feel okay was to fake it. And I have to tell you that when I heard that story, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And I thought, what an amazing story. And after I got past the part of how, did, how the heck did you fake it and does she know and could she figure it out, what I really was interested in, you know, why guys did it and the mind of men. But I'll tell you an interesting story that relates to what you were saying is that since I came across that and started talking to patients and, and just friends and stuff, it turns out to not be rare. Mm-hmm. Guys, guys fake it too. Here I thought I was a special flower, and I'm not. <laughs> I'm sure you are, but you may not be for that one particular instance. Okay, so we, we hear all the time about women faking orgasms, and you know, sex advice professionals like me are always advising women not to do that, not to fake mm-hmm. orgasms, um, to go for it, to have real ones, not to leave so many men rattling around out there in the dating pool convinced that penis and vagina intercourse is all they got to do. They just got to bring the dick and she'll come when we know that for 75% of women, that's not enough. What's the advice to guys who fake? Are we being, although I only did it one time 25 <laughs> years ago, are we being horrible when we fake? Is it something guys shouldn't do? Or should we be a little, you know, chiller about women doing it to us? 
Well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm with you that in general, I think we want to be having honest relations with people, especially when we're naked with them, right? But, um, but I think that underlying all this and, and why I used the business of the story of a man faking it as the title of my book is the question is like, why do we do it? So, you know, when you told the story, it sounded like you just kind of wanted to be, to be done. But what I would say about what you did and what guys do and what women do also is that it's actually, a form of kindness also. So there's something about it that's almost like saying, listen, I appreciate all the effort you've put into this. And I'm now going to, I mean, we're not saying it obviously, but I'm going to give you something so you feel like you've done a good job. Um, so when men do it, it's a form of kindness. <laughs> but when women do it, it's misleading. or Because we, we talk about women kind of doing it under pressure, women doing, right. women faking it because the guy feels like it's a referendum on his dick and his skills. Yeah. And if she doesn't come, he failed. And so a lot of women will fake it kind of under duress and then box themselves into a corner when they, they've been faking it for a while with somebody that they were dating and then they wind up with that person forever. And then they have to breast, they have to tell them the truth that what you're doing isn't working for me. Yeah. Listen, I, I But it's different for guys. Guys are no, doing it to give somebody the gold star. I think I think that it's, you know, not the ideal thing in any case. But let but let's be serious for a second. One of the most complicated things that we will ever do as human beings is sort out what happens during a sexual encounter or a sexual relationship. I mean, there's so many different cues and things that are going on that affect not just us but this other person. And I think that some t I, I would give a pass to anybody who does this once in a while, whether they're male or female. I, 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 so it's not, I don't think it's the goal for anybody to be faking. But I think that sometimes it's not the worst way to resolve a situation. But what that, I thought, what I wanted to say about it, though, is in terms of guys, though, the thing that I think grabs people about it is not just that guys haven't known that, or guys and women haven't known that guys can and do fake it, but the idea that a guy would fake it and, and for sort of out of some kind of kindness goes against the standard narrative of men as being purely selfish and uncaring about their partners. And okay. That, uh, I was going to ask you here. This can't be the only unexpected truth that you discovered about men in your practice. Uh, the subtitle of your book is The Totally Unexpected Truth. I think you meant truths. What are the others that you uncovered? Well, I think what I just, I mean, I think that that's the number one. Not that they fake it, but that actually in the ways that guys have the worst reputation in, in terms of sex and relationships is actually where I see them as rather grand, even noble. I mean, it may be a flawed nobility, in the sense that you know, guys aren't always perfect, and you know we succumb to one thing or another. But I think the intention of men is actually to be a great partner. And one of the, I think that so he's a the guy who faked it is one example. But what I think most people don't understand is that once a guy has feelings for his partner, I think he gets more out of being able to provide satisfaction and gratification to the partner than he does about himself. And, and let me give you a great example. So there's a character in the book, not a character, a real case. I change his name. I call him Duncan. And he's a 27-year-old paraplegic. And he comes in in his wheelchair. He's married. And um, I help him so he can have sex again. He's got erectile dysfunction. And he comes back in follow-up, and he's, like, thrilled. He's ecstatic. And he says, my wife is so happy. And, doctor, I feel like a man again. And I think most people who hear that story say, sure, he feels good. He's a guy. He's having sex again. 
there it is. But the kicker in the story is this is a guy who doesn't feel anything down there. He doesn't have an orgasm. He doesn't feel anything. It's not about him. It's about what he's able to provide for his wife. And the pleasure he takes in the capacity to give pleasure. You know, it engages that sex organ between the ears that we talk about all the time. Fucking isn't just about genitals mashing together and feeling. It's also about how you feel about those feelings, right? Ab- absolutely. And, 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 but the thing that really strikes me is, is that that's a major part of what, how guys get a sense of their, their manhood. You know, it's a, I like to joke, you can take a guy who will have sex with, with his partner for, for two hours, right? And they'll do 27 positions out of the Kama Sutra. And if he looks over at his partner and he thinks, well, I didn't really, she doesn't seem that happy with me, he's going to feel totally deflated. Mm-hmm. You take another guy who can only last 30 seconds, but in that time, his wife or his girlfriend has a screaming orgasm. And or, he's per, say, or appear I'm the or man. A, or appears to have a screaming orgasm <laughs> in 30 seconds. Well, if he believes it, he's going to feel like he's done a great job because uh-huh. we, get, we get our sense of, of, of accomplishment, our feeling of masculinity, manhood, from what we can give. It's not all about what we want. Of course, it feels good. Well, what do, how, this other part. how do you reconcile this sort of concept of men as giving and very concerned with their partner's pleasure or all of us, male and female, giving and concerned with our partner's pleasures? With research that shows that sexually selfish people are better in bed and more fun in bed, that on some level we want we want someone to use us, take us for their pleasure, and just to be with somebody who's Mr. Giving Bag of Slop, crawling up your ass, asking you if this feels good and what else they can do for you, that shit's exhausting. You want to be thrown around and fucked by somebody who knows what they're doing and is you know, objectifying you at those moments you want to be objectified. So how do we – how do we keep both of these guys in our heads at the same time? Mr. Giving and my erections for you and Mr. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you, lay down. Well, you're funny. Listen, the, so sex involves both of those things. Nobody really wants – listen, we, sex is sex, right? I mean and great sexual experiences are great sexual experiences. And, so and I hear about like, this all the time. People call in. You know, I was with somebody who's a totally selfish asshole, was <laughs> yeah. a terrible human being, didn't care about me and the sex was – Amazing, and I miss it. Now I'm with Mr. Nice Guy, who cares? And it's awful and boring. Well, you know what? What it brings up, Dan, is that I think that one of the toughest things for guys now is to figure out how to be a man. And I would say that for every decade since the 1950s, I think it's become more and more confusing. So that guys have really have tried over the last whatever 20, 30 years to be more sensitive to, you know, to whoever, not just women, but guys with guys, right? Like we're supposed mm-hmm. to be verbal and emotionally available, whereas in the past it was considered a compliment to be the strong, silent type, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work anymore. And I think guys are trying to figure it out. And the, and the tough line to walk now is, which, which you're getting at, is how to really be like great, uh, to be manly, and tough and maybe act like you don't care so much and have some manly abandon while at the same time actually paying attention to the other person. And some of that gets confusing depending on whether or not this is a person you're with like long term or whether you're just having, you know, a physical relationship. I'm not sure they're exactly the same. 
Why Men Fake It, The Totally Unexpected Truth About Men and Sex by Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler. It's a fascinating book. I got it at home. It came to my house. Thank you for sending it to me. I only just started reading it though. So uh, let's have you back on the show when I'm done reading it. We can talk about some more of those unexpected truths. I would be delighted. Thank you, doctor. Great to be with you. Um, hey, Dan. Um, sorry, I'm a little shaken up right now. I was on my boyfriend's iPad yesterday morning, and he has left up a tab for, like, a recon.com adult male fetish site for men um, and has left up a profile that was some man who, like, enjoyed being saint and things like that. So I was pretty thrilled, and I decided to snoop. And I looked through his sent emails and found from probably six months ago or four months ago pictures of him that my boyfriend had sent to a fake email that, or um, a secret email that he has of himself wearing thongs, like from the back. Um, and I confronted him about it this morning. He denied it and denied it until basically I had to tell him that I saw the pictures myself. And then, you know, he was crying and saying he's not gay, that he is just a fetish that he's into, and that he's never actually met with a man or ever been with a man in real life, and, um, you know, that he's heterosexual, and I just don't know um, if I should believe him or if I'm crazy, if I consider, like, you know, staying with him after he's lied about everything, and obviously I'm, he's not just into women. Um, or if this is like just the gateway and then eventually he'll end up sleeping with a man. And um, I'm just trying to figure out if I'm being foolish by, you know, thinking about like talking to him about it. And if it is just a fetish, if he is straight, I just don't know. Your boyfriend could be gay. He could be bi. There is certainly more to his sexuality than you knew. There's more to his sexuality than he led you to believe. There's more to his sexuality and who he is a sexual person. Then you naturally assume, you know, here's this guy. He was interested in you. You're a female. Seemed perfectly normal and straight. I assume he fucks you. You don't mention your own sex life. I assume you guys have a good sex life. Does he eat your pussy? If he eats your pussy, that's a sign he's probably not gay. That doesn't mean he couldn't be bi. But there's certainly some aspect of his sexuality that involves a great deal of homoeroticism that he gets off on at the very least – showing off for men in a gender transgressive way, wearing women's underwear and then being viewed by men and desired by men. And there are some guys out there, some straight guys even, who have a little touch of the the bi around the edges. There are some straight guys out there who that's a thing for them, that they don't want to have sex with men. They don't want to suck dick. They don't want to get fucked by a guy but they want to be wanted by a guy. They, they, they get off on being the prick tease. You know, there's a lot of men out there who wish that women would look at them with the same kind of lasciviousness and aggression that it, sometimes it feels only other dudes will look at you with. So that could be what he's after and I'm building a massive sort of mound of rationalizations here for you to keep you in this relationship perhaps, right? That could be what he's after, just that kind of aggressive – feeling, of being desired, of being gazed at by another human being the way men gaze at the things that they want to fuck and women typically don't or are socialized not to. Maybe he just wants to throw his ass out there online so someone will tell him it's fucking gorgeous and they'd love to put their face in it. And women don't say those sorts of things to men. But men 
particularly on a site like Recon, they will fucking say that. And maybe he's just an attention whore and wants that. And maybe he's bi. And maybe he's gay. You're in a better position to answer that question than I am. Does he eat your pussy? I know it drives people crazy when I say that, but it really is true. Like, really, go cuts right to the heart of it. If he is gay and having sex with you under duress because he's closet, he doesn't want to come out, he doesn't want to deal with the social repercussions, and he's pursuing sex with men on the side, and he has just enough sex with you to keep you around, he's not eating your pussy. He's closing his eyes and fucking you and pretending you're a dude. Does he fuck you like that? then maybe you should end it. But here's the thing that you need to ask yourself before you end it. If he's the other thing that I described, if he is bi and has a little bit of a fetish and there's a lot of guys out there who are bi, perhaps the majority of guys out there who are bi, who are not interested in relationships with other men. They only are interested in occasional erotic or sexual encounters with other men. They love and and love having sex with women and can fall in love with women and they enjoy sometimes being sexual with men but they do not have relationships with men. They do not fall in love with men. If he's that, do you want to stay with him? If he's just a kinkster, totally straight, only into women but kind of gets off on being a bit of an exhibitionist, likes that feeling of being on the receiving end of that kind of male energy – likes to cross-dress a little bit, is interested in spanking. Now that you know all this about him, that there's more to him sexually, that he's more complicated and kinky and there's more to him sexually than you knew, can you stay with him? Could you love a guy like that? Could you love him? Not despite those interests but in part because of those interests. Will it make for a more varied, interesting, fun sex life for the two of you if this is something that you can relax Give him permission to pursue, enjoy, find something that's in it for you too. If you can do that, then maybe you could stay with him. But if this is something that's going to drive you up the wall, if this is something that you're going to shame him about and he's going to feel terrible about and you're going to police him for evidence that he's doing this, if you're always going to be worried every time he gets on a computer for the rest of your life, you should probably end it and he should find somebody who can enjoy his kinks because they're a part of his sexuality. And then, you know, when two people are together and they love each other, you should find ways to enjoy your sexualities, your shared sexual life, but also giving them permission perhaps, not necessarily talking about an open relationship here, but permission to have their own things that you don't necessarily love or enjoy or even understand, but you're not going to interfere with because you don't want to be the erotics cop because it's a terrible position for you or anybody to be in. And it poisons a relationship and ultimately ruins it. So the question for you, if he's gay, you should end it. If it's gay, it's over. If he's gay, done. If he's a little bit bi, could you be with a bi guy? Is that something that you could do? Then maybe you should stay. If he's 100 percent straight but has these kinks around exhibitionism, maybe spanking, cross-dressing, can you stay? Can you enjoy those things? Do you have some kinks of your own? Then you can stay. But if what you want is Mr. 100 percent normal, Mr. wants vaginal intercourse with a little bit of oral around the edges every once in a while, maybe he wants to blow a load on your tits on his birthday and nothing else, he has demonstrated to you he is not that guy. If that's what you want, you know he ain't it and you need to end it. Hey, Dan. I live on the East Coast in a very liberal town. I am a big kind of uh, muscular, hyper-masculine looking guy. And I find that I'm actually really attracted to, and I always have been really attracted to, women who are a little bit 
uh, closer to the middle of the gender spectrum, less hyperfeminine, more just kind of um, yeah, not, not, not entirely androgynous, but somewhere in that in that zone. Um, I think it's that's somewhat that's the kind of person I really want to date, as opposed to these more hyperfeminine girls, which I typically have sex with because they seem to be more attracted to uh, big mostly guys. And that's really been the issue is, is that I I really 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 want that girlfriend, <laughs> someone who is uh, you know um, not not traditionally feminine, more uh, kind of in the middle. The problem is that they don't really seem that into. Um, big, strong, hairy guys. They seem to be more into guys who are, you know, close to the middle of the gender spectrum. And so I have this issue where you're facing a weird amount of rejection, which is not entirely common for me because I'm, you know, a fairly attractive person. Should I just give up and go back to, you know, hooking up with, uh, <laughs> with more traditionally feminine women, um, which I enjoy, but I don't get everything that I need from them, I guess, spiritually or intellectually. You know, in general, it's sometimes it's more of an IQ thing. It's like women who are um, very, very smart, um, very educated, the type of women I really like, um, tend to really not be into uh, knuckle-dragon-looking guys. I mean, I'm, I'm very educated, but I I think uh, there's a certain physical presence I have, which is, I guess, they're not accustomed to liking, which is, uh, it's becoming a, it's, it's, it's been a little bit painful because it's, I'm starting to realize this may not ever happen for me. And uh, just calling to see if you have any ideas on how to how to deal with that. You know, it, it, it's funny. Just now, when I was listening to your call today, I got a letter from a kind of dikey, androgynous, bi, but more into men woman. Sort of sounds like your type, who felt conflicted because she was into knuckle dragger, big, muscly, beefy guy types. She was into guys sure. who looked like the kind of guys who were pathologized in her women's studies courses. So unfortunately, yeah, I can't definitely. I can't hook listeners up with readers because the lawyers tell me that if somebody gets murdered after I do that, I could get in trouble. Um, <laughs> so I can't I can't give you I can't pass her info on to you, but I can tell you that there are women out there who are right for you. And I don't know where you live right now, but a lot of the sort of masculine types that you're describing when you, when you lay them when when you just describe the woman you're after, I was just sitting here thinking, oh my aunts, Chicago broads. <laughs> Maybe you need to get the fuck out of whatever effete little liberal East Coast city you're in and get to a Baltimore or get to a Chicago or get to a Milwaukee where there are broads who are straight ladies, who are kind of masculine, kind of aggressive, super straight and wouldn't look at you as anything but, you know, the the guy from the Bears she's been fantasizing about fucking for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, the, the issue that, that I've had and I've had that thought because um, I, I just moved to New York you know, from, from somewhere else on the East Coast. And for a while, I considered going maybe so, somewhere else because I had spent the past 10 years or so in, like, a really kind of liberal left-wing environment, which is kind of, I identify as, you know, a male feminist. Like, I'm all about, uh, you know, the gender spectrum and all that. The issue that, that is... <laughs> but you're being judged by feminists and lefties based on your appearance and that you present yeah. as traditionally masculine and you're being... Slammed for that, and, and you've been made to feel insecure about that. That's hilariously ironic. Yeah, I know. I, I, I've explained it to one or two women that I've dated, and they're, like, totally perplexed um, at the idea that, that like, uh, that masculine guys kind of go through this because they're so used to hearing, hearing it from their, their gay friends or their, their queer friends that, like, that they have this feeling of having been pathologized, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I, I got to yeah. say, though, that, you know, you, you there was one thing you said in your call that made it sound like you were saying that feminine women or femi women aren't smart and that, you know, I've met some pretty fucking stupid androgynous women and some pretty fucking smart femi women. Oh, I didn't mean that at all. I, that's not, I, I know. I, I said it sounded like that's what you were saying. It, it just sounded like, no. you know, an accident of spoken, you know, verbal speech of just yapping. And sometimes you sound like you said, said something you didn't mean to say. And I would also wanted to jump into that moment and say, you know, there's a lot of women out there who are presenting traditionally feminine because that's what they think they have to do to attract the type of guy that they're into. But they find all of that primping, painting, worrying about clothes, exhausting, and they don't enjoy it. So I, would, I wouldn't rule out, you know, a feminine woman that you know that you that you like, that you get along with, that you're attracted to. Uh, I wouldn't rule out dating those women because you never know when you're going to hit the jackpot and find the one who just is desperately wishing she didn't have to do any of this feminine presentation work anymore. And then there you are, yeah. the guy that she was primping to attract, and you're like, oh, I'm into you despite all that frosting. Not because of it. Yeah. How old are you? This is actually the, the original question I wanted to call you and ask you. How old are you? I am 26. Okay. I'll be 27 in a month. You're young. You can't have had your heart <laughs> stopped on that much, that often. Nobody at 26, 27, nobody worth dating has had a lot of romantic success at this age. People who are yeah. romantically successful by age 25 are usually uh, in the Bible Belt and early marriage types. And they're miserable. Sure. You've been dating around. You've encountered some rejection. None of the girls who were the kind of girl that you were into were into you. I was in the same place when I was your age about guys. Yeah. I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, just you, you, you have a very um, introspective kind of personality. You, you're, <laughs> you're very smart. And I feel like there is a definite, like, there's, I mean, it's a stereotype, but the, the, the culture of, like, the, the, uh, Overly promiscuous, uh, you know, gay bimbo that like the, that that whole stereotype, especially like the eighties and nineties. I'm sure you probably got really frustrated. Yeah, as I a did. All, all, all of us oversexualized gay bimbos in the eighties very much resented that stereotype as we lived it. Particularly, yeah, yeah. all I'm saying is, you know, there was the kind of guy I wanted to meet, and I kept not meeting that guy. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. And it was just that I hadn't met that guy yet. So don't look at yourself and say because you haven't met your ideal sort of slightly dykey, androgynous straight woman yet, that you're doing something wrong or you look the wrong way or you're the wrong type. You just haven't been the right person for that right kind of dykey straight girl because you guys yeah. you haven't met your right dykey straight girl yet. You will. I met my right surfer boy when the time came. <laughs> you will meet her. Just stay in the game and don't pathologize. Don't, you, know, you need to let go of all this that I'm too big and beefy and muscular and hairy for any of the women that I'm attracted to to be into me. That's just not true. That – Androgynous women's – their tastes run the spectrum, the gender spectrum, yeah. just like everybody else's can. Yeah, I know. I, I just I – I kept having this experience where like they would say that but then I, I would kind of see the kind of guys that they were sampling and they tend to favor a certain um, – a, a guy who's closer to the middle of the gender spectrum and like – Yeah, you know, but was that was all not, they could find? Like a, I'm sorry? You know, guys who are closer to the middle of the gender spectrum are thicker on the ground in liberal East Coast college towns than your type. So just so that yeah. the women were dating those guys doesn't mean that those are the guys they wanted to date necessarily. That may have been all they could get their hands on. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, 
Yeah, and, and, and I realize it, it, it is young to. I, I, I hope I didn't come off as sounding like hopeless about it because I'm not. I, I, you are I too thoughtful hopeless. for your own good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need to think less, masturbate a little more, and get out of the house. <laughs> I yeah no I I, I agree with that. You need to approach the women. For maybe masturbating more, I think I might need to use back on that. <laughs> you need to approach the women you're into, not feel like you're the wrong type physically in all possible ways for all the women that you might find attractive because you got rejected by this woman that you approached or that woman you asked out on a date because everybody does that. Everybody gets rejected until they find the person they're into who is miracle of miracles into them too. You will find that woman. Yeah. Just keep fucking looking and be aggressively who you are. Don't – I see this. You know, I have some friends who are into like boyish guys but they're bears but they pretend to be boyish because they want to be what they're attracted to. You know what I mean? And it's pathetic and ridiculous. Like sometimes yeah. – the best way to get you know the particular type you want is not to be that type also but to be its opposite. The cliche is true. Opposites really do attract sometimes. So instead of running from your type, your physical type, who you are, you need to play it up. You need to be the you need to run with what you've got and work it. And then that androgynous dikey woman who despite maybe even feeling a little conflicted about it and despite the like Stink guy from her friends who's into guys like you, she'll come running. So long as you are unselfconsciously, unashamedly the guy you are. Yeah. But if you're there cringing in a corner, wringing your hands because you're not a skinny, little, twinky, androgynous, straight boy, that makes the type you are less attractive. That undermines your type. Because if you present yeah. physically as like rough and tough, macho, knuckle dragger, you can still have feelings and sensitivity and a heart and a soul, but you can be that guy too. Don't hate yourself for being who you are and don't pathologize yourself. And you will attract my aunts, broads. Go get to Milwaukee. Go vacation to Milwaukee sometime. You will clean the fuck up. <laughs> I think the reason it's all started is because a few years ago I was like in love with a lesbian and it like fucked me up and like that was like a huge thing, you know. And so that's, that's – it's not even so much that I'm experiencing constant rejection. It's just like the – the, the whole situation of being like in love with and, and like we she and I were sleeping together but she didn't want to tell anyone she was fucking this dude who was like a big dude because it like you know all the chicks in her feminist studies course <laughs> like you know like would have shamed her about it she she feared that they would but like I hope, I hope you're mad at her for making you feel like a piece of shit I hope you're mad at her for if you retold this story with she was a skinny guy and you were a fat woman and she was too ashamed to tell her friends that she was fucking you and so she snuck around and hid you. She and yeah. all of her feminist buddies would identify that as abusive, sexist, horrifying, uh, violating ways to treat someone. But yeah. she treated you that way because you're a dude. Yeah. That ain't cool. It ain't cool when a skinny dude is into big girls – Treats a big girl like that and makes her feel shamed. And it's not cool when a bisexual woman who's dyke identified treats uh, her big straight boyfriend like that because she's ashamed. Yeah. No, it's, it's good to hear someone say that because I've had to like keep it a secret to not fuck with her life, you know? In 10 years. You, have so a, you like know what? I'm not telling you to out her, but people can't ask you to do that. You have a right to your own experiences. Someone yeah. can't fuck you and then swear you to secrecy. You, you, there's no non-disclosure pacts in relationships. Yeah. 
You don't have to. You don't have to honor her closet, particularly if it makes you feel terrible. I feel like so we're not in each other's lives anymore. So it's, okay, good. Uh, and, and then you have a right to that experience. You have a right to unload about it yeah. to your friends. You have a right to tell anybody you want to. You don't have a right to vindictively lash out with Facebook posts and attempt to fuck her life up. But she can't ask you never to talk about it for fear that it might get back to somebody in her bullshit feminist leg not shaving collective. That's not fair. That's controlling yeah. bullshit behavior, and if she had a dick and she was doing that, she would recognize it as such. All right? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for this phone call. You're welcome. Good luck. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old gay man in a happily committed relationship, um, living in a fairly conservative state in the Southeast. But I'm not really calling about myself. I work with a woman. We're teachers, and, and she teaches in the same department as me. She's in her early 60s, and she's been married for many years, 30 years probably. And she has two grown children with her husband. Um, I'd heard recently from other coworkers that she was going through a tough time in her personal life, but I didn't really ever get any details other than that. But one day, I basically stumbled across some information on the Internet that consisted of, among other things, her husband's mugshot. Um, he had been arrested a few months earlier for solicitation slash crimes against nature. Aside from the fact that I thought the Supreme Court struck that down, um, I deduced that her husband was caught propositioning a man. So a few weeks later, I was talking to this teacher, and she vaguely referred to, as she'd done many times before, these personal problems she was having. So not being a very good liar, I just flat out said, well, I know. And she broke down crying, started telling me what happened, at least, the version she was told of what happened. Her husband went to a YMCA in a nearby city, started talking to a guy. The guy asked him, did he ever do anything with guys? The husband said yes. I guess they made plans to meet up in another location. Um, then when the husband went to meet the guy, he was arrested. So, of course, this all sounds a little strange. You can be arrested for that. But who knows if I really got the complete story. Anyway, my coworker acted like this has happened before and that she knew about it. She said, when he's feeling down and depressed, sometimes he struggles with this same-sex attraction. But it really bothers him because that's not who he is. He's just not that way. She made sure to tell me she didn't mean to offend me, presumably the only out gay person she knows, and that she didn't judge me for my choices, even though the Bible clearly says that being gay is wrong. Anyway, here's the thing. This coworker and her husband are very religious. They go to one of those, everything in the Bible is literal, inspired, infallible word of God types of churches. Her husband was the church's music minister, and they had to stand actually before the congregation and tell everyone what he did and resign. They'll probably lose their house. But anyway, when she was telling me this whole story, she kept asking me what I thought, what was my opinion, as presumably the only gay person she knows she knows. So I wanted to say, well, your husband is gay, he's been told all his life that he's wrong, that it's wrong, he's internalized his feelings, he's been trying to pray the gay way, but he can't because, oh, he's gay. Um, but I just couldn't bring myself to say this. They've been married for 30 years, she doesn't want to leave him, they're trying to pray the gay way. So I said something like, well, sounds like you're going through a really tough time and dealing with this the best you can. But I guess my question is, if she asks me again what I think, should I tell her what I really think? Some bisexuals will complain about bisexual erasure. That's where you have a worldview that doesn't allow for the existence of bisexuals. And hilariously enough, uh, there's an interview with a bisexual guy in Salon complaining about bisexual erasure. And his – the thing he pointed to as you know evidence of bisexual erasure was that whenever there was a big sex scandal, a big gay sex scandal – uh, a Ted Haggard or a Larry Craig, everyone would run around saying, oh, this you know, minister got caught having sex with a male prostitute. He's secretly gay. 
And this guy complaining about bisexual erasure said, well, what if he was secretly bi? And that it was evidence of anti-bi bigotry that people didn't say, oh, no, 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 wait, Ted Haggard could be bi or Larry Craig could be bi. I think bisexual erasure works to the benefit of the bisexual community at those moments. Anyway, this guy could be bi. Who knows? He could really love his wife and really dig eating her pussy, her 60-something pussy and really dig all the hetero sex that they've had for 30-some odd years or he could be gay. But you know what? Whatever he is, it's too fucking late. He's in his 60s. He made his bed. He's been lying in it for a long time, lying it in the lie down sense, lying in it in the lie sense. And there's nothing you, Mr. 28-year-old, out gay, partnered, uh, sensitive, thoughtful, kind guy can do for them now except make it worse, right? You can tell your friend, well, what I really think is your husband's gay and that he's been living a lie and your marriage is a lie and blah, blah, blah. And you can rub salt in her wounds as she loses her house. And I – you know, that's the truth. I, I agree with you. That's probably exactly what's been going on all these years. But at a certain point in life, I think people are allowed their illusions if they're not hurting anyone else. And it doesn't sound like this guy is successfully avoiding hurting other people. It sounds like he's hurt his wife. But he hurt his wife in a way he didn't intend to. He hurt his wife or the state hurt his wife by attempting to regulate or police the probably consensual conduct of adults at the YMCA. And so she's suffering. And your only choice here is knowing there's nothing that you could do to make this better. Are you going to run your mouth and make it worse? And if I were you, I – despite the fact that I run my mouth for a living and sometimes make it worse for people by doing so and sometimes make it worse for myself, I would advise you not to run your mouth in this instance. I would advise you just to listen, to smile, to nod, allow this woman her illusions, allow her husband his illusions. They're going to be dead and gone soon. It's too late to undo the 30-plus years together, the life they've built together. They might live a more truthful life apart, but will it be more fulfilling apart? Probably not. So leave them with their illusions. Smile, nod, allow for bi. Don't want to be guilty of bisexual erasure, do you? Smile, nod, allow for bi, tell her you feel terribly for her and don't argue with her about theology and don't argue with her about choice, don't argue with her about anything else. Not worth the time or effort, just not worth it. We're going to play a few response calls now. Last week or the week before, uh, I took a call from a woman whose boyfriend was very interested in anal sex and she was thinking about maybe doing it but she had been traumatized by a previous boyfriend who kind of went for it in a way that was very upsetting and painful for her and so she had – she was scared. And they were having vaginal intercourse and he pulled out and then with one mighty thrust jammed his dick up her ass and fucked her ass and then claimed it was an accident and I said, that can't happen. Knowing what I know about fucking butts, you just can't plow right in that it takes a little time and a little prep. And this – I actually think I said this has never happened by accident to go from V-hole to A-hole. This has never happened that there was intent and I actually told her she should dump the motherfucker. And then the phone started ringing. Hey, Dan, I just heard the girl who got accidentally fucked in the ass. I think you got that one a little bit wrong, maybe. I mean, probably 95% of guys, it wouldn't be an accident, but it can fucking happen. It totally can happen. And you wouldn't know because you're a fag. Maybe you fucked a couple chicks when you're 18, but that's not the same thing as fucking women for 40 years or 30 years like I've done. And 
it, it can happen accidentally, especially in missionary, especially if things are very lubed up, especially if your legs are up. You can accidentally fuck a woman in the ass. You really can. I don't think it's impossible. The first time it happened and I had anal sex, I woke up the next morning and I told him that it felt really good and he was very, very stunned because he didn't even know he did it. While I was fucking her in the ass, I accidentally put it in the pussy. Uh, Christian girl, you know how that is. Pounding away once before, in, out, in, out, and bam, just about put her head through the headboard. Um, it happened. I love sex. I have it all the time. And I've been accidentally steered many times. It's happened with numerous partners, numerous shaped penises, numerous times. Sometimes if you're really wet and going at it, it does happen. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. That to- that happens. Okay. I concede the point. You know, when I first started writing my sex advice column a million years ago, I thought the clitoris was inside and up somewhere at the top of the vaginal canal, behind the belly button, but inside. I had no idea. I've learned a lot from my listeners and my readers over the years. And now I've learned that accidentally fucking someone in the ass is a thing that happens to women. Uh, It hasn't happened to me or any of the guys I've fucked. But I, I guess it's something that can happen during penetrative heterosexual intercourse. It is possible to pull out too far and with one mighty thrust end up in the a-hole. I've seen the light at the end of that very dark tunnel. I apologize to all the guys out there who might have gotten dumped by girls who were like, hey, after listening to the podcast, that wasn't an accident. I apologize to you guys. And uh, to any girls out there who dumped a guy because of something like that, uh, you might want to consider taking him back. Of course, now we've, we're providing cover, of course, to any guy who might want to give this a try and then pretend it was an accident. Maybe it would have been better to leave it alone. But the truth will out in the end. So thank you all for your calls and I apologize to all the accidental ass fuckers out there for making you feel bad. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. And hey, do us a favor. If you like these new Magnum Savage Lovecast shows, if you like the bigger, longer, and uncut Savage Lovecast, please go write a review of the Savage Lovecast on iTunes and let them know that you like the Magnum because it's like. 206-201-2720 is the number again. Also, my new book, American Savage, comes out May 28th. Please go pre-order it now. Publishers Weekly has called it one of the 10 best books of the summer, and Amazon.com this week said it was one of the best books of May. American Savage comes out from Dutton, May 28th. Please get your hands on a copy. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. We'll be back at you next week another installment of Savage Lovecast. Micro and Magnum. Thanks for downloading.